0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15%, not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load. But they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none. And we're not just a firefighter, or a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally... I have the Shove-It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station, and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range. You can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorn apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients, formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers, in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to episode 331 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Ed Calderon. Now Ed has spent a career working as a police officer in Tijuana, Mexico, Before moving over to the US and now becoming a highly sought after resource for special forces for law enforcement when it comes to cartel violence and kidnapping and human trafficking and other areas that we see, particularly each side of the border. So this is an incredible episode for a multitude of reasons, but I think it also is a great perspective looking at the way we are seeing law enforcement dragged through the grinder at the moment. Ed talks about the environment where despite a lack of public support, their men and women still sign up, put on the uniform and risk their lives. It does talk about the environment that encourages corruption and poor training in some areas. And also highlights the horrendous violence that some of the Mexican people are exposed to. Another element on top of that is something that I've talked about, which are the underlying issues coming from the US that are contributing to that violence. So, so many different angles, such a great conversation. Before we get to that interview, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, Leave feedback. I do love reading what you write. And then leave a five-star rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast and make it more accessible and easier to find for people looking for a project like this. And then, as I mentioned, every single week, this is a free resource for you, Planet Earth. So you can use it individually. You can use it in the department where you work. All I ask in return is that you pay it forward and help to share these powerful stories from these amazing men and women we have on the show to get them to the ear holes for every single person that needs to hear them so that being said I introduce to you Ed Calderon enjoy Well, Ed, I just want to say thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on. I know that you have just got off a huge block of work. You're just about to go into another huge block. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to, to come on my podcast. Uh,
1: th- thank you for the invitation. I mean, it's an honor uh, and a privilege to be a part of your, uh, you know, your podcast and all the conversations that uh, you already had with other people. And it's an interesting list of people. So it's like me including that is, uh, is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, well, as we were saying before recording, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how your life story you know, intersects so many other guests that we've had, but from a very different perspective. Um, without being specific, obviously, where, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: Uh, right now, I'm in California. Uh, I, ju- I, was, uh, you know, I, I do some consultation stuff uh, for, for some Hollywood productions, and, uh, and, and I find myself in L.A. every now and then. That's where I'm at right now. Telling people how federal Mexican police uniforms and equipment looks like, you know, that type of stuff. I'm about to go back on the road uh, tomorrow. So just enjoying the, enjoying the sun for now. Uh, everything's shut down, though. It's weird. You know, it's like a ghost town right now. They shut it down again.
0: Yeah, I wish I could say I lived in Burbank for, um, how was it, a year and a half and then Huntington Beach for a while. So, yeah, it would be pretty cool to see I-5 or 405 pretty uh, quiet compared to what I was used to.
1: It's, it's, it's uh, scary, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, then I like to start at the very beginning. So where were you born and then what was your family unit like? What did your parents do and how many siblings?
1: Wow, that's way in the beginning. <laughs> uh I was born in the beautiful city of Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, the the uh, corner of the Latin world, the uh, big, the largest uh, and most tra- uh, transited uh, port of entry on the planet. Uh, it's a unique city, you know, it has a, a, a bad bad fame uh, across the world. Every time I say uh, every time I say where I'm from people usually give me a look, you know, oh Tijuana. <laughs> um uh, but it's a, it's a it's an interesting city, a lot of character, and I, yeah, I I I couldn't I wouldn't change it for the world as far as as far as uh birthplace and hometown. My um mom, devoutly Catholic dad, kind of on the atheist side. Uh he was an electrical engineer. My mom is uh was a was a nurse and uh grew up with uh two big brothers, my, my big brother Neto. Uh, also went into the electrical engineering field and my brother Eric uh, who passed away when he was 19 I was 13 and uh, my foster brother Alberto Um, interesting interesting little family unit that I kind of grew up in Um, all all of them had a big influence in my life uh, moving forward but uh, the biggest influence is that uh, they all went into the uh, Electrical engineering and, and university studies type stuff. You know, I was the black sheep of the family. I, I went completely the opposite direction <laughs> as far as a lifetime.
0: Now, I don't want to get too personal, but was your brother's death any, in any way, shape, or form related to some of the things that you saw later in your career?
1: Uh, you know, it's, uh, it was a car accident is what uh, I was told I was 13. Um, who knows? <laughs> is is all i could say about that yeah uh there was a he was 19 um he was a, very known in tijuana uh, still to this day despite all the stuff i've done all the magazines i wrote written for uh all the all the places i reached uh i'm still known as uh, eric's uh little brother in certain places down 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 south um so i i, I don't know you know, it's not. It's one of those weird um, family mysteries that kind of dissipate, dissipate in the background.
0: Right. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, well, when you were younger, obviously you know, you're you're uh, an elite operator, basically through a lot of your career. What about athletics? Were you a sportsman when you were young? I
1: was judo, boxing, um, skateboarding, uh, jumping fences, and tagging my name, uh, my street name, or or or. Uh, you know, street or uh, working on street graffiti and art, you know, that that was me when I was growing up. Um, mostly, you know, one of my biggest kind of, uh, one of the biggest things that I went into when I was a kid was skateboarding specifically. I liked that whole risk factor of it. Um, uh, kind of, uh, struggled a little bit with, uh, with, uh, you know, keeping up with boxing. Boxing is in Tijuana is, a part and parcel of growing up there. I mean, if you don't know how to fight, you know, you're going to get your ass handed to you. Uh, so I grew up uh, doing judo, doing uh, doing a little bit of boxing. Um, but mostly skateboarding is what kind of uh, shaped my youth a lot. Uh, that was like the thing we, we used to kind of hang out and do, you know, back when Tijuana was a bit more peaceful.
0: Right. Do you skate much as an adult? Because I've seen quite a few of my, you know, pro friends that are in their 30s and even early 40s that after couple of decades finally decided just to get their ass back on the skateboard and, and play around
1: uh i can tell you for a fact that they probably didn't go through jump training uh, <laughs> they, they, they didn't went they didn't wear any uh didn't wear any weight on them for a long period of time i'm struggling with some hip and knee issues uh now like i'm in my i'm uh, about to turn to 30 uh 37 and it's uh i could feel it you know um i'm a product of a of a few uh a few a few uh years of experience that uh I didn't take care of myself I was uh uh with a mindset that I would last forever and apparently not you know
0: <laughs> Yeah I think there's a lot of people listening that can relate completely to that Um well then again your your youth your teens growing up in Tijuana did you have um any pressure from people in your community to kind of push you towards the the wrong side of the line as it were
1: yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, most of the people that I grew up with, uh, they went that direction. You know, um, it was it was uh, during the uh, the initial stages of the of the drug war uh, conflict or whatever you want to call it. Um, back then, they, the the there was a phenomenon called the uh, narco juniors. Narco juniors were basically Children of some of the elite uh, high class uh, families in Tijuana, uh, some of their kids basically went into drug tra- trafficking, not because of need but because of fashion and and risk taking and just wanting it to be a part of the you know the, the culture was a cool thing to do. So you would see some of these kids uh, coming from very well-off families all of a sudden being drug involved in drug trafficking and you know, murder for hire schemes, abductions, that type of stuff uh a lot of my friends went into that kind of uh were eaten up by that uh that kind of trend back then you know the the whole draw and allure of the narco culture you know back then it was pretty strong and still is um yeah a lot of my friends went into it and later on I would find them out there you know when I was active and I did every now and then get the invitation you know it's easy just you know all you have to do is just drive across the border with something, it's fine. It's easy money, you know, and, mm-hmm. then, and then you would be on the hook.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. Now, I know you um, obviously ended up in law enforcement. I want to get to that for a moment, but am I right in understanding your initial passion was medicine?
1: Yeah. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Uh, not only a nurse, but, you know, she was a more of a curandera, as they call them down in Mexico. Basically, she was a, uh, the healer. You know, if somebody needed an injection, somebody needed uh, some advice of, of uh, how to deal with some sort of malady or sickness in the neighborhood. And it was always my mom who would get called uh car accident on the side of the road. and My mom would get out. No, she was, uh, she was, uh, she was always a curandera, the healer in the family. So I took a big cue from her when I decided to choose a career path when I was younger. And uh, medicine seemed like the uh, optimal thing. Uh, Spent about two years in, 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 in medicine uh, studying it, and then uh, 9/11 happened, and kind of the economy on both sides of the border uh, took, took a very you know bad turn, and um, I struggled uh, to keep myself in that uh, university, and eventually it just uh, financially I couldn't get a jo- I couldn't get a side job, uh, family money was tight, so I just had to uh, I just had to let it go. And it
0: was a dream. Right. Now I know that you, you know, found yourself in law enforcement. Tell me about how that role was viewed by, you know, the, the nation, the community, and then how you found yourself entering it personally.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's always been a shady endeavor. Mexico and being a cop in Mexico is, is not a, it's not, is not what most families would want their children to go into. You know, I, uh, I viewed it as a challenge personally. When I when I was uh young, I saw the ad in the paper. I saw uh, the experimental nature of what they were trying to do with the 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 group that I that I was a part of, and uh, I also saw that a lot of people were not being allowed or accepted uh, in this election process. So I I thought it I thought it was a interesting you know, thing, thing thing to pursue. I thought it was probably. I thought I was probably not going to get it so I kind of went in, went into it not even thinking that I was going to going to be able to uh, stay on or not or not be accepted um and I uh, kind of didn't tell many people about it um you know the only ones that knew about it were my big brother who actually you know gave me a ride to the uh recruitment center uh then later on I had to like <laughs> Break it through the to to the, the my whole family that I was accepted, and uh, it was a it wasn't a, you know there wasn't a celebration to, to say the least. Uh, being a cop in Mexico is not a, is not viewed in a, in, in, as a respectable job. You know, it, it immediately in the minds of most people, it strikes up. Uh, well, he's probably working with a cartel. You know, well, he's probably on the take. You know, he's probably taking money from so and so. He's probably gonna get killed. Um, you know, even dating, you know, <clears throat> when I, when I was dating back then, uh, it would be something that I wouldn't mention till later on, you know. See if I can get in there.
0: <laughs> you leave it off your it eHarmony harmony profile.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was not a uh it was not it was not something that would uh, attract the right uh, the right type of women that's all I'm going to say about that
0: <laughs> yeah well that's interesting and i want to get back to that because obviously ironically as we sit here recording this there's an element of that in the us now but um before we even get into your journey through law enforcement what i would love to do as an education for myself and everyone else listening knowing the history of the prohibition of drugs here in the us and how that affected not only this country but the u k where I'm originally from, but as we you know you'd be an idiot not to realize that that's destroyed many of the uh, the countries in in you know Central and South America or at least affected them very negatively what from the historians that you've heard what has been the effect from wherever you know baseline was a hundred years ago to the kind of regression to where we are now as far as the impact of prohibition on Mexico specifically
1: uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, Mexico has struggled with, uh, almost, a uh, you know, a 90 year, uh, dictatorship by a single political party, you know? Um, and it's also, uh, a former colony and it's a Catholic nation. It's a conquered nation in a way. And that culturally has always been part of the way it handles itself. Uh, Mexico is a country that uh, is uh, surrounded by sea Pacific and Atlantic. It has natural resources. It has every single climate imaginable in it. Uh, it, uh, it borders the world's one of the world's richest nations. You would think that it should be set to be uh, one of the, one of the, one of the most richest nations on the planet itself, but that's just historically not the case. It's uh you know the, the, the reverse is true, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, how it was founded. You know, the, the conquista, uh, how uh, how a lot of us uh, from Mex- Mexico have a have a kind of an in- interesting programmed, uh, you know, just uh, guilt. Uh, I don't know, just a weird a uh, uh, low sense of our national uh, heritage and pride, which is pretty interesting. Most people that come out of this country, uh, uh, come out of Mexico and move to the U S have a lot of Mexican pride. And it's an interesting phenomenon because they usually have that pride once they don't live in the realities of, uh, of Mexico. That's when the pride comes up. Um, as far as the dr- uh, as far as the drug trade goes, uh, you know, Mexico has always been part of uh, going around or circumventing circumventing prohibition laws in the U.S. Uh, Capone owned uh, a, a few bars in Mexico and Baja specifically, uh, and Tijuana has a has a history of being a prohibition era waypoint for people that wanted to drink during the era. Uh, again, Al Capone used to used to land his uh, his his, uh, pri- his private plane on a runway that is now. Long forgotten, buried uh, in Tijuana. So long history with that. Um, and now, you know, we're supplying uh, the world's largest drug market uh, through uh, through through its borders by growing it, uh, by making it, by being a waypoint between South South American countries that uh, send cocaine up, uh, by being a a, a waypoint uh, of countries like China that sent their uh, fentanyl uh and then we inf- in and we in Mexico infuse it into heroin and that now gets sent up into the u s um, and the violence around keeping the flow basically i mean the 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 effects of uh, the effects of living next to the largest drug market on the planet are clear, you
0: know yeah. Yeah, well, I want to get back to that because I think there's some very powerful points that need to be made. And again, your perspective, I think, is going to be extremely um, important in that discussion. But back to kind of, you know, your the beginning of your career. So kind of lead me through the role you had as soon as you put the, the uniform on and then where that took you over the next few years. Uh, uh,
1: militaristic uh, type training, you know, I get there. I was promised a, you know, a career path into police work. Uh, I was promised a, you know, scientific police investigation type, uh, level training. And all of a sudden I find myself in an open field, uh, getting my head shaven, completely involved, uh, with a bunch of other people around me, uh, <laughs> that, uh, I was trying to figure out if I belonged there or not. And, um, it was a militaristic type training. A lot of the people that trained us uh, during our basic training were all mm, former members of the GAFE. The GAFE is the, uh, the Air Mobile Group, uh, a special forces unit that produced the Zetas of legend that now a lot of people uh, know about because of um, Amazon, uh, <laughs> some Amazon series and watching Netflix, you know. Um, some of those same people were the ones that uh, that got to train us, you know. And uh, they basically treated us, treated us like human garbage. You know, the first thing they said when we got there is, uh, "Guys, uh, there's only two things to eat here: bread and dick. And guess what? Bread ran out two weeks ago, so that all you're gonna get is dick." And I was like, "This isn't uh, what I this is what I signed up for, probably. But you know, let's see if I could manage." Uh, six months later, I was, uh, six months later, I was on a range shooting 20 rounds of nine millimeter through a Beretta 92FS, uh, 10 rounds of 12 gauge and a few rounds of two, two, three, and then getting my badge handed to me and I was ready to go fight the drug war. <laughs> uh, it was a very, uh, it was a very, uh, half-assed, uh, trading program, uh, and then I quickly realized what they needed was bodies to throw at the problem. And I was, I was one of those bodies. Um, they kind of made it a point to ask about our family status. Do you have any kids? No. Are you married? No. Do you want to get married? Well, not now. Oh, awesome. You're a perfect candidate for our program. <laughs> so you, you, you could kind of tell that uh, that's what they were after, you know, just bodies that throw at the problem. Um, uh, after that the whole trainings thing, I uh, was basically handed a badge, uh, signed my paperwork, signed my life insurance policy, uh, got handed over a Glock 17 instead of a Beretta 92FS, which was pretty interesting. and i never even seen a Glock in person before. Um, no holster, soft body armor, uh, two magazines for the Glock, and a, uh, I think at that time it was a G3, an h G3. With a single, uh, with a couple of uh, magazines to it, and you know, just pulling it uh, towards the street and you know, go out and do work. Basically, um, this was just around the t- the the start of like the like re- the, the real intense uh, drug war that was later, kind of basically openly declared by the president of Mexico in two thousand six. Uh, two thousand four era, it, there was there was stuff going on, but it wasn't as explosive as it would later turn into.
0: Right, so there was no prevention element to it. Then you were basically boots on the ground of a pseudo army.
1: Um, the, the, uh, the the whole mindset I had was: I'm going to do police uh, p- uh, community policing. I'm going to you know prevent crime. I'm going to be part of the programs instated by the uh, government to lower whatever. And it was more akin to urban guerrilla warfare. That's what you know later on. When I started learning about definitions and studying it uh, more in depth, uh, I realized it was more along those lines as far as what we were doing. Um, uh, We had arresting powers and the army didn't, so we would get uh, placed in with uh, military units that were going and hitting uh, targets across the country. Um, And uh, we would basically be be the ones that would sign for the arrests and for the uh, attention or of, of people or the question of the people. So it was very clear that, uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't there to, uh, we weren't there to be a, a prevention force. Like I was sitting in the middle of a Humvee in the back of a Humvee with a bunch of guys that were there, you know, just following orders like machines, you know, um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see the, uh, the community service part of it, uh, when I was, when I was there. You
0: know? Yeah. Well, it's funny because you, when you talk about Tijuana, I worked in Anaheim Fire for a few years, and so many of my fellow firefighters would go to TJ, as they called it, you know, on on a trip. But you know, the the landscape that I've heard you describe in in other interviews, like with Joe Rogan, is a, is a polar opposite of what one would consider a vacation spot. So, give me the history of the cartels' growth from whatever petty criminals it originally evolved from through to where they are now and why you were sitting in a Humvee specifically.
1: Uh, I mean, um, Tijuana has long since been one of the richest drug routes on the planet. It's six, it sits next to the, uh, five freeway corridor, which again is one of the richest drug routes on the planet. A lot of the drugs that go into the U S, uh, come from a few, uh, go through a few ports of entry. And one of them is Tijuana. Um, People realized this long ago yeah, and uh, the the border was built up and security was uh, was uh, was uh, uh, placed on the border fence area. Even, uh, you know, historically, it's been just be, been one of the more secure points when it comes to walls across the uh, between b- both uh, countries. And, uh, you know, cartel evolution has. Uh, has used it as a university of sorts. Uh, the phenomenon of drug tunnels was first uh, kind of seen in places like Tijuana. Uh, drones being utilized to fly drugs across the border was first seen in Tijuana. Um, it's 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 an it's an interesting place because of how much money gets made off Tijuana itself. Um, there was a family that there was a family that used to run most things as far as drug uh, related operations in Tijuana. Um, the Ariano Felix cartel. Um, they were basically the kings of drug uh, smuggling operations uh, during the 90s. Uh, in Tijuana. they owned the landscape. They owned most things here. They separated themselves from a larger group that originated back in the 70s and 80s uh, and they kind of uh, went uh, independent. Uh, they were one of the, one of the first cartels to kind of do that in Mexico. So they, they were part of the first fractioning that happened basically uh this large cartel um was very unique in 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 how they operated um, They recruited uh American gang members as uh, hired guns um, so they would uh they would they had links to the mexican mafia on the u s side and they would hire uh you know Mexican mafia members to come down to Mexico and do you know hired gun work or assassination by, uh, for pay sicario stuff basically. Uh, they are pretty unique in what they did. Um, they, 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 uh, they've made the industry of drug trafficking into, uh, into, uh, you know, global industry in a lot of ways. And they were some of the first innovators in, 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 in the subject of body disposal. Apparently they brought in some uh, people from the middle East, uh, to train some other guys. And some of the training they got was in tradecraft stuff, uh, that was probably Mossad related, uh, back in the 90s. Um, they had a rift with the Sinaloa cartel, which made Tijuana into a war zone, basically. Um, members of the Tijuana cartel uh, defected to the Sinaloa cartel side, and Sinaloa pushed forward into into Tijuana, trying to gain control of it. Um, members of the ariano Felix cartel, uh, as fa- families tried to kill Ochapa Guzman several times and were killed in the process of trying to do so. So uh, Tijuana became a battleground uh, between both of these forces. That's what I stepped into when I first uh, started working. Um, It was a war on three fronts, basically. Well, You could say it was four or five, if you kind of count the society not being on our side. And some of the local police agencies were basically compromised by other cartels. So we had to worry about them and the two rival cartels fighting out. Uh, with each other. Um, when I was uh, active, uh, what 2004 era, 2005, 2006, 2007 era, it was a full-on war uh, war zone. Tijuana was. I mean, middle broad daylight shootouts. Uh, you know, some legendary shootouts that uh, in 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 Tijuana, uh, the Cupula shootout, uh, the Hospital General Hospital shootout, where they basically took. Uh, command of a whole hospital uh, in downtown Tijuana. Uh, historically, uh, Tijuana that is that's it's 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 a prize basically. It's a prize that cartels want. Uh, it used to be Tijuana cartel versus Sinaloa cartel to fight for it. But now that Tijuana cartel has allied itself with the New Generation cartel, which is a major force right now in all of Mexico, it's kind of expanding its influence. Uh, that's why. Uh, Tijuana is back on one of the most uh, as one of the most dangerous cities if not the most dangerous city list on the planet
0: yeah and that's I think it's a really important point and I heard you kind of mention it in, in other podcasts as well so just over the border of the US right south from San Diego we have a city that would be comparable to somewhere in Afghanistan or Syria or you know Iraq back when it was really bad and so there, there's police officers like yourself that are being given, you know, a sidearm and a, and a rifle and being dropped into the middle of an environment like that with these incredibly technologically and tactically trained, basically, soldiers from the cartels.
1: Yeah. Um, and that advantages are um, they have no rules of engagement except for a few, you know. Uh, they are being some of them were being paid way more than we were of course uh you know speaking of early, late nineties uh, early 2000s it was five hundred dollars a week if you wanted to be an armed cartel sicario guy for the local cartel uh you know on our end it was about two hundred and fifty dollars a week, so, <laughs> you know, so you can you can kind of do the math there. Um, you know they they got the you know they, they they every now and then we would run into groups of superiorly armed uh, and uh, numerically uh, superior forces on on the cartel side and I was rolling with the army in in a lot of these uh, cases so basically we were outgunned and outmatched by criminal groups and we had the power or the might of the state behind us and that wasn't enough um, so. Yeah, it was it was a it was it was a surreal environment to be dropped into, and um, you know I remember uh, what I mentioned. You know, I was handed a gun with two magazines, uh, 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 some second chance, a soft armor, and a rifle with two magazines, and um, I, I remember the surreal occasion uh, with the army walking into this uh, in safe house somewhere. And then looking at the magazine, asking me how many magazines do you have. Like, there's two. Well, now you have these, and then grab these. And what about plate armor? You have plates? No. I'm flipping over a, a, a found set of plates on me. You know, <laughs>
0: that's crazy. when I
1: kind of knew that. I, yeah, that's when I kind of knew that I was not. Uh, I was not in a conventional uh, setting.
0: <laughs> not <laughs> at least. all. No, well then. So circling back to the corruption, then you've got a profession that is held in disdain. You, you know, I've got a group of men. Is it was there female officers there, or was it all male?
1: Uh, it was mostly male at the start, but a few females that were kind of relegated to the sidelines mostly at the start. Later on, they 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 were included more in, into some of the operational roles, investigations and stuff like that. Um, but it was mostly you know macho male type of uh, setting
0: right you know? so you've got that that factor you know you got the, these these uh men that are earning a fraction of what the people around them are earning so without shirking blame i mean there's of course individual responsibility tell me tell me some of the the influences that created so much corruption in many of the police officers
1: uh, i mean basically you know, we we would always like laugh and cry at uh, at our predicament as you know state agents. Um, we would we would see uh, the family members of some of our fellow uh, guys uh, that would die and their, the struggle that their families had for things as simple as you know getting the insurance policy paid. Um, we would. You know we would see the the complete lack of equipment uh you know couldn't fill up with gas at times um there was no money to feed the group at times so that that would make leadership in the group basically going going into uh extortion uh roadside extortion just you know if you're drunk yeah I pay the fine here and that's what they would feed the rest of us with uh it was just systemic uh, the, the, the you would quickly realize you were on the losing side, uh, and staying on was just a, it was just uh, you know we were sadist in a lot of ways uh, for staying on. Uh, the way corruption seeped in, you know, um, uh, as soon as people started having families and certain as as people started having mouths to feed, uh, idealism went out the window. Uh, the you know the offers of whatever amounts of money, uh, to some of these people, you know, you would be surprised about the amounts that some people got offered and paid to basically betray, you know, people that had, you know, cried, bled, uh, uh, and, uh, came, come up with training with them. Right. Um, you know, they, they did have certain uh, countermeasures when I, where I was working, uh, all of us had FBI background checks. All of us uh, went through, uh, Polygraph examinations, uh, drug testing, psychological evaluations—they uh, kept us clean for them for, for a while. <laughs> um, but uh, everybody has a price. Everybody has a price. Uh, you would get the old plata o plomo, which means letter, silver, offer, uh, or you would be placed in a compromised position by working for somebody that was your supervisor or boss that was on the payroll and you had to go forward with whatever activity he had as far as an agenda. Um, That was just the reality of working down there.
0: Yeah. Now I want to paint a picture before we get to, you know, asking you about solutions and things you think that, that we can do to address these issues. But, um, paint, paint a graphic picture for me, the, the horrific things that these men do to their enemies, the you know, the the, the relatives of the enemies, yeah, you know, the, the rival groups, whatever to, to scare the the community they're in. Because I think that picture really needs to be painted. This isn't like a little, you know, like nineteen eighties movie shootout. I mean it's it's as horrific as any terrorism that we see on the planet.
1: Um, I'll I'll uh, I'll paint a picture and not and I won't be one sided with it because I I've, uh, I've gotten some comments and, and, and some criticism for being uh, one-sided in my point of view. And again, I've, I've, been, I've arrested cops, and I've arrested criminals, and I've arrested members of the military. Um, so when people say bad guys in Mexico, I'm not talking just about cartel guys. Um, we can talk about what the good and evil looks like down south but it's not uh there's a reason why I call it the upside down you know it's it's a, it's a, it's an upside down place um, uh Mexico is a country where um, a group of students on its way to protest uh equality issues uh to Mexico City can be stopped by a police unit be completely Get, get their bus completely shot full of holes and a few of their students killed. And the federal government, the military and the local authorities uh, g- complicitly made all those bodies disappear. And now there's a bunch of crying mothers looking for their kids, not even a body to bury. Um, uh, the And this is something that happened with uh, full know-how and support of members of the military in mexico members of the federal government uh state and local authorities and these are the people that are being paid to protect they were responsible for this disappearance of all these kids right now that is a reality you know it's 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 proven fact that that happened uh so being a citizen, you look at one side of that coin, you're like, well, so I can't depend on these people. But you look at the other side, cartel guys, the cartel groups, uh, propaganda. You know, We're here to fight this other cartel. This other cartel dedicates itself to extortion and abduction. We're not about that. We're about protecting the communities. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, let's accept some donations from them during the COVID epidemic, you know. Bags of you know, essentials. Uh, then one night you get a knock on your door and there's a group of armed men outside of your house. And uh, one of them notice your daughter uh, at a local shopping mall. And they want to take her out for a party. And you being a father of you know, a few kids, uh, without having the ability to arm yourself because that is isn't allowed specifically by the constitution to you know carry a firearm um it's very limited what you can carry in mexico or own uh you have no ability to do anything do you call the cops well i just told you the side the the, the mindset uh, of most uh, mexican citizens in the, in the middle part of the country that's where, uh, when it comes to authorities and calling the cops so that's not an option do you uh you hand over what's most precious to you, uh, a child, and uh, you don't see her again, ever. And and then, you know, years later, you're part of this group of family members of people that have disappeared in Mexico looking uh, through a clandestine grave of 50 people that were dissolved in acid. Uh, Getting your DNA swab to see if any of the new mound of bodies found somewhere in the desert matches, um, you know, tirelessly looking through pictures of, of, of bodies uh, that were never claimed. Um, it's a it's a hopeless environment. Um, every every now and then, I get the uh, the, the, the word poverty said to me by Americans. Um, you have homeless people that are overweight that have smartphones, so I don't think you know what poverty truly is. Um, every now and then, I hear Americans talk about hopelessness and about uh, not having options. I don't think uh, in that regard as well, I don't think you don't know what being hopeless is as well. Um, if you can see just across the border, you know, right next door that's that 's a good window into what things that 's where that 's a window into what a bo- what bottom looks like i think again one of the reasons why I call it the upside down
0: yeah well let 's talk about the upside down and, and something that i 've learned somewhat recently i 've had a few guests on the show who have really educated me on you know some of these areas. one was uh, Sam Quinones who wrote Dreamland. And it was a parallel story between the opia epidemic that they had here and then the um Jalisco black tar heroin that was coming from Nayarit in in uh Mexico. Um so you know, seeing seeing these small um suburban towns in America just become riddled with opiate addicts. Um, you know, initially coming from their own physicians and then ultimately being replaced by heroin when the uh, pill mills were shut down. The other person was uh, Johan Hari, who wrote an incredible book called Chasing the Scream, and it really detailed the origins of drug prohibition and then the knock-on effect in the U.S., in the U.K., in Mexico, in all these different places, and then highlighted some countries that either legalized or decriminalized And, you know, overturned those issues. But when it comes to talking about the upside down, when I look back at the racist, you know, reasons why drugs were prohibited in the first place on the tail of the failed uh, alcohol prohibition, you then look at Colombia, at El Salvador, at all these different places, obviously Mexico, and you have to claim some responsibility now for what happens in those countries. So I have a very skewed perspective. I think that legalization or decriminalization to me in a basic economics one oh one setting you cut the head off the snake that's how you address a lot of these issues and, and help reverse you know these tragedies that we're seeing at the moment. Without loading the question, what is your perspective on how we take the power out of the criminals hands and put it back in, you know, the citizens' hands again?
1: Um, let's uh let's let's go back to legalized marijuana in places like colorado and, and california you yeah. uh, know legalized pot in california colorado and, and then now a few other parts in the country you know re, uh, recreational medicinal uh, whatever you want uh if we can go back and trace some of the original A's into heroin laced with fentanyl by the cartels. You can trace it back directly into to the days and uh, days where pot stopped being such a cash crop for cartels. It is still being uh, grown, still being uh, moved across the border. There's there's illegal cartel-run pot fields in California and, and other parts of the country as well. Uh, but let's that's a, it's an inter- interesting example of, of what legalization does. In, 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 in some regards, it's a positive change, you know, in some regards, it doesn't take into account other effects. Um, so, that in a part, and in a way, legal, pot legalization in a way created a, a need for another product to be sold. And a lot of those pot fields in Mexico are now covered in poppy. I'm not saying it's a it's a direct result of the legalization of pot, but it it, it was helped along by it. You know, Um, then you get people on the U.S. side saying, well, this is an example of full legalization of, uh, of drugs in this country. This is an example of legalization of drugs in that country. Uh, and why doesn't Mexico just legalize all drugs and just cut the front and just cut the feet off the, uh, of the cartels themselves, uh, down South? Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. And, uh, there's, I've yet to see a single methadone clinic in, in Mexico myself. You know, I know they're out there, but they're, they're, there's very few and far between, um, The health system that would be needed to contain, control, and treat a a population of drug users and people that wanted to go into rehab is non-existent in Mexico because Mexico is a weird first world, third world country that is segmented as fuck. Um, COVID has wrecked the medical system. I wouldn't even want to imagine what a permissive heroin uh, heroin uh, uh, legal con- uh, law in Mexico would look like as far as the medical system. Because simply put, there's no such infrastructure in the country to deal with it. Uh, some of the examples being uh, said as far as full legalization in other parts of the world do not take into account the realities of Mexico, which is we have very... Little infrastructure to deal with such a thing. So, if we want to talk about full legalization, we would have to address the problems of a of a country that is corrupt at the very top and the very bottom, that doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with something like a COVID epidemic or even other simple health health issues. Uh, and you know, if people out there are hearing this, there are from Mexico, they will tell you what El what Social looks like, which is a you know, the, the social health service in Mexico. Uh, it's not, it's, it, it, it literally looks like a, uh, like, uh, like, a Syrian, uh, you know, health, uh, Syrian uh, medical crisis, uh, out there in the field somewhere. I mean, it's, it's not a good place to be. Um, and finally, uh, full legalization of all drugs, uh, doesn't take into account that cartels diversified their businesses years ago. Drugs are part of what they do, but not all of the things they do. They have their hands in pirated uh, merchandise. They have their hands in uh, people trafficking. They have their hands in sex trafficking. They have their, their hands in legitimate businesses and investments in legitimate businesses, real estate. Uh, cryptocurrency, uh, uh, international software company. Uh, there's a few international software companies that uh, all have probable money in there uh, that comes from cartel hands. Hollywood uh, has probably a few cartel interests already in it. Uh, if you see from, if you see where they're going with their depictions of the cartels in popular culture and shows like Netflix and and Amazon. Um, so if you wanna talk about the uh the uh the the uh if you wanna talk about their propaganda game their propaganda game is way better than anything isis or or uh or uh Al-Qaeda ever had um yeah, they uh have uh, they have interest in in mining operations going on in mexico and mexico is about to go into its a, a transformation uh Mexico's transformation is going to be related to its ability to produce a very important substance for the world's economy which is lithium. Uh it's it's about to be the it's it's about to turn itself into the largest uh it has the largest deposit of deposit of mineable lithium on the planet on its uh southern on its northern border in Sonora coincidentally enough uh a few uh miles away from where the uh That the american mormon uh, massacre happened um and already there are cartel ties in the mining situation in the region uh dealing with extortion and uh protection and uh, pay protection from some of these criminal groups and the rest so it's it's a complicated thing um full legalization would be interesting but i think we're past the point where that would even matter in in as as far as mexico
0: right well i think that's the thing so what i see from a brit living in the u.s um is we've we've you know we've made a huge mess with that one person being allowed to you know, prohibit drugs. And this this, the ripple effect is almost 100 years old now. The war on drugs has cost, I I forget, I I looked at it when I was um, researching my book. I think it was something like $3 trillion so far on the quote-unquote war on drugs. Well, the 100, you know, years obviously an epic failure. But my thing is legalization in the U.S. So, and like you said, not piecemealing it. If if it's just going to be replaced by another drug, which is actually a deadly drug, the opiates, which you've, you know I, as a medic, I've seen so many of the overdoses myself firsthand. That's not a solution, you know. The same way as what the Obama administration tried to put in for healthcare here it was was piecemeal and it was a complete failure as well. But a complete legalization where. We do have the resources for the methadone clinics, the safe injection sites, the cycling people that are addicts, not into prisons but into counseling. So, as you said, we are the biggest consumer, the us. So if you can cut the head off the snake at least on a demand side, it's not addressing the lithium, it's not addressing all these other um you know pseudo legitimate businesses that they have, but that will at least you know be the the biggest you know stem, the biggest artery. But then, you know, the other thing is, how much are we pouring into preventing illegal immigration? Well, to me, as an immigrant, and I know, you know, you are you actually fully through the process yet, by the way? Are you?
1: Uh, I'm a green guard holder, so I'm like about two years, uh, two years from being able to apply for full citizenship.
0: Yeah, so as you know, as I know, it's a very long, very ardu- arduous, quite expensive process. Um, but to me, the way you fix immigration is you try and help your neighbor create an environment where people aren't fleeing for their lives. That that seems like the very simplistic thing to me. So maybe the US being the incredibly wealthy nation that we are can help invest into Mexico in a positive way to help create infrastructure, to help, you know, um support something that would look like legalization. But we're the consumers. Like you said, I, I've got a, a friend who's a Navy SEAL SEAL team six guy who just did um a psychotropic therapy using um, uh, DMT. And that was the only thing yeah. that worked with his PTSD and his addiction. He had to go, a man who fought for his country had to go into Mexico to have this treatment done. So Mexican, yeah. you know, laws are actually more lax than we have in the US. So that's my thing is taking ownership of the damage that we've done with this, with this prohibition. Stop it! Just say enough is enough. Yeah. It's been a complete failure. And then just taking one element at a time, start fixing it nationally, and then start fixing it internationally. Whether you know wherever in the world that we've kind of fucked it up, we need to take ownership and start helping those nations rebuild.
1: Yeah, uh, another another element to that, which is, I mean, great. I mean, as, as far as, uh, as as treatment goes, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing you mentioned. And, and I mean, uh, not a lot of people talk about that and it's a powerful thing to kind of, kind of go into, um, you know, I have, I, I struggled with uh, TBI and I have my own issues with a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and I, I, I uh, com- uh, completely upside down than your friend, you know, I find, I found, uh, the use of uh, psilocybin as a uh, therapeutic, uh, substance, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in uh, in the U.S., I didn't find that in Mexico, which is pretty interesting. You know, kind of basically on opposite sides. Uh, but you know, as far as uh, motivating the country or the society in in a way uh, for them to realize how this uh, this whole situation is affecting it, uh, you know, I, I stood somewhere in Seattle looking at the ground at a bunch of spent needles that were distributed by the local government and paid for it with uh, tax dollars. All these needles were used to inject uh, heroin that uh, was grown in Mexico, in the fields that I probably uh, walked uh, walked through and burned uh, at some point in my past. and the heroin itself was laced with a substance that gets uh, sent from China. Um, there, I don't see the conversation going into that China factor a lot in the U.S. Uh, you know, fentanyl is being put into Mexico and fabrication is being set up in Mexico by Chinese chemists that are working with the cartels. Now, as far as I know, China does have a criminal element to it. You know, we can talk about the triads. Uh, But every time the triads make an appearance in places like Hong Kong, they're usually working for state interest. Uh, You saw the triads make make an appearance during the Hong Kong protest uh, on the side of the Chinese state, basically fighting against the protest. So anything that happens criminally, as far as trafficking of substances into other countries like Mexico, is probably Chinese state-sponsored or at least Chinese state is complicit in what's happening. That itself is something that I rarely hear talked about and rarely see mentioned in, you know, media outlets. I know it's. Uh, I know we're currently living in a day and age when there's a virus going on and it's not cool or. Politically correct to call it the kung flu or the uh, uh, China China virus or whatever. You know, politics aside, political correctness aside, there's a foreign country that is sending a substance that is killing thousands of Americans uh, and is feeding it into the hands of criminals that live next to your border. If that's not motivating enough for people to try and ask questions, <laughs> to try and uh, you know cause change uh, this th- there's a country pumping that uh, stuff into your neighbors uh, to your neighbors and uh, and then there's also people in the nba that refuse to, to talk shit about that country and there's uh you know, disney you know marvel marvel movies i don't want to, they don't want to talk shit about the uh, you know, china i mean that's it. as a foreigner you know uh as somebody that uh that's not from the us seeing the u.s's popular culture react to such a threat has been both scary and fascinating
0: yeah and then again it's the same it's the same you know element i think the same solution and i'm not in any way shape or form suggesting the solution is going to be easy but i sat in front of a guy called jiao gulao in portugal about two, two and a half years ago now, my brother and my mom emigrated to the Algarve, south, of, excuse me, south of Portugal, a few years ago, and she told me, "Hey, did you know they decriminalised drugs here?" And I, and I had no idea. And the way the the opiate crisis happened there is they had a lot of soldiers fighting in one of the African nations, and when they came back, they you know either turned to or already hooked on on opiates, and at that point they had the highest opiate rate you know opiate addiction rate of anywhere in the whole of europe so progressively for a pretty you know again quite a poor country when you look at europe they got together realized that the old model of addiction wasn't working and so they didn't legalize but they decriminalized so no addict was going to be thrown in jail no addict was going to be arrested um they were they were detained and then given an interview and told about all the resources that were available they didn't even have to go to those resources but where they had spent money on all these arrests and court cases and filling their, their prisons, they, they proactively put the money into addiction centers, into psychological therapy, into job creation. And within less than 10 years, it's about eight years, they became the lowest on the European addiction you know scale. And that was by cutting the head off the snake. Now the police officers could actually do their job, focus on the smugglers, focus on the traffickers. Um, and then the court systems were now freed up for them to actually process those people as well. But these addicts came out of the shadows, out from behind the dumpsters and, you know, all the areas that, that you and I have seen um, and became, became functioning members of society. They didn't automatically have an uh, a, uh, arrest record just for having the audacity to be addicted because they have a mental health crisis. So, even with the fentanyl, you know, you could you could prevent that by the the legalization where it doesn't matter what the jap the the Chinese or whoever pumps into the country because the addictions are all under the oversight of that nation's medical community, not in the shadows of the underworld.
1: Uh, it, it 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 sounds like a beautiful solution for the country that it was put forth. In uh, problem is. Mexico goes uh, to, through six-year cycles of amnesia. Um, what I mean by that is that every six years, you would get a federal government to being put into office, that it completely starts from zero. And uh, we have we Mexico has a country that uh, their former top uh, law enforcement uh, guy is now on trial in the U.S. for corruption charges. This is a guy that was applauded by the FBI. The DEA has a bunch of recognitions internationally as a lawman, and now he's he's, he's being put forth in uh, in a uh, corruption charge uh, case on the U.S. Now, we had the arrest of a border governor. A border governor was arrested in Florida and is about to be extradited to Mexico on corruption charges. He basically bought a bank when he was a governor, and he funneled a bunch of state uh, public money through, through through that bank and just filled his pockets. Corruption is at all levels, all levels of society in Mexico. Um, I think that is more in, in, in more of an issue when it comes to pro- if we, if somebody, if, so let's say somebody was decided to, uh, you know, decriminalize drug users in Mexico. There are a lot of drug users in Mexico, but that, that I, I don't think the the problem specifically stems from. Drug use in Mexico—it it stems from the industri- the the industry of smuggling drugs into the U.S. That's the problem, right? Um, but uh, let's say tomorrow somebody decided to decriminalize it, and then we're gonna we're gonna start setting up these centers for treatment and psychological evaluation and all that stuff. That would mean state contracts, federal contracts, and you would immediately see the hand of corruption in Mexico. Uh, you would see, you know, this 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 uh, this company winning the contract. You would see that company over there being the one that's going to supply whatever, you know. And eventually, you'll see cartel get involved in the whole business. And eventually, you'll find out that some of the uh, companies that were supplying, you know, uh, housing uh, for some of these uh, for some of these uh, programs are not going to be used to house cartel guys, just like just like it happened in the Irapuato, Guanajuato with the, uh, with the uh, rehabilitation center being basically used as a dormitory by new generation cartel forces. Again, I think culturally Mexico is not ready for it. Uh, financially, it's not ready for it. And the whole political class from the top down is just not up to the, up to the task. I wish it was as as as, as, as I wish it I, I wish it could be you know where you know take the cue uh, from Portugal and kind of move forward in that regard, but even even if we did you know legalize all drugs for uh, all drug users and 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 uh, you know and not uh, not penalize them, you'd still have to take into account extortion, abduction, uh, uh, murder for hire. Uh, the trafficking of guns and, and ammunition from the U.S. to Mexico, or South America to Mexico, or now even Africa and the Middle East to Mexico, and some Chinese uh, weapons are showing up as well. So, I mean, it's it's just it's between the rock and the hard place in a lot of regards. And I, I mean, I wish it was as so simple as just full legalization, but I think the problems are more uh, and and a bit more complex than that.
0: Yeah, but but I'm talking about the U.S. If the U.S. had legalization, yeah. so you didn't have any American black market um, sales anymore. There wasn't that need. There wasn't that um, demand. Would that not have a knock-on effect on, on, on Mexico itself if there literally wasn't a market in the U.S. anymore because they had decriminalized well, or you, legalized?
1: I'd say yes. You know, you would probably cut. You would probably cut the legs off uh, some of the smaller groups out there. Uh, financial legs uh, to be uh, to be clear, um, you'd probably do, would cut off some of their financial legs uh, of some of the bigger ones as well. Uh, I think you know. So you legalize pot in California, and cartels are growing illegal pot in California. Uh, <laughs> you legalize uh, methamphetamines uh, in the U.S. and probably going to see an underground market as well kind of uh, originating itself uh around it um i'd say it would affect things on the mexican side as far as uh, criminal groups probably going to limit uh, you're probably going to limit the the uh the ability for a lot of them to maintain themselves financially uh and you're going to end up with one or two large groups which is what we're actually already headed towards uh nationally um But again, I think it would probably stem the growth of smaller groups that are kind of working in tandem with some of the larger groups in Mexico that that depend completely and solely on the trafficking of uh, methamphetamine, heroin, even marijuana. Uh, But I I don't see it as a complete kind of like this is going to end in cartels in Mexico solution.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. If, if it if it makes a positive change and certainly saves lives both sides of the border, then then it's definitely worth a try. I mean, what we're doing right now doesn't seem to be working too well. Um, uh,
1: I, 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 I like, as far as the solution goes, I mean, I'm I'm just a I was a street level guy. Um, later on in life, I kind of went went at it as far as trying to really think about you know what uh, the U.S. does on the Mexican side. Uh, I think. One of the things that just as a country, the U.S. should just do. You now, one of the first pro one of the first uh, steps to solving a problem is is, is 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 admitting it has a is admitting you have a problem, right? Mexico doesn't want to admit that it's that it, it is currently in a, in a civil war, uh, for control of its territories with uh, large organized armed militant terrorist groups um and the u.s doesn't want to recognize that as well why i don't know maybe it, maybe it's because of investment maybe it's politics i don't know but cartels meet every single definition of the word terrorism in most the most of the minds of the victims that have been, felt fell and fallen prey to the cartels um Every now and then you'll hear people say that they're not politically motivated, so they don't follow, or they don't have an ideology they want to to, to, uh, push forth. Well, some of these cartels have uh, have historically killed political candidates. They've historically paid off political uh, members of of the political parties on on both sides of uh, the border that I know of. Um, So... They're clearly politically motivated. They clearly have a vested interest in them keeping control over the territories they control. So, and they hang people from bridges. And they cut people's legs off with chainsaws and put the videos online. And they uh, kill many people, many people during a, uh, a day across the country. And there's 90, more than 90% of all murders in Mexico aren't solved. Uh, There's killing fields in Mexico. There's mass graves in Mexico that would rival some of the Nazi stuff uh, from World War II. Um, But the U.S. doesn't want to admit that, and Mexico doesn't want to admit that. Uh, So I think one of the first steps as a country that should be taken is admitting that there's a problem and treating the problem as what it is. It's not a war against uh, It's not a. It's not a war against the substance. It's not a policing problem. It's not a law enforcement problem in Mexico, or in the U.S. It's a civil war, with terrorist groups that are that have, uh, time and time again, handed the government's ass over back to them. The recent one in Sinaloa, the whole the, the Sinaloa cartel beat the army.
0: And El it just beat the
1: army. Yeah, yeah. It, it beat the army. Imagine if Chicago had an incident and you would send the, your military there and they beat you, you know? That, that is, anybody outside of your country would say that's a failed state. Mexico is a failed state. Mexico doesn't hold control over its territory or its borders. Uh, there's a political class and system that is inherently corrupt at, to its core to its core. Uh, and there's also a large segment of the, the, the society that, uh, you know, is, uh, part of these criminal cartel groups. So, uh, I, I'm, again, I go, I, get, I keep going back to the whole admitting that there's a problem. And I don't think, uh, I don't think the U S government is ready to do that. Uh, it, it's not even, it's not even about, uh, uh, political inclination because the Obama administration didn't want to do it and the Clinton administration didn't want to do it. The Bush administration didn't want to do it. And now we just saw Trump walk back his comments as far as declaring the cartels as a terrorist group. Um, I think, I mean, I don't know what to think about that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, firstly, like you said, if if you think of the average person's definition of terrorism, I grew up in the UK, so I my childhood was seen watching the IRA blowing my people up, you know, and I used to have to sweep the. We live right next to a, a military base, so I had to sweep under our car with a mirror to make sure there weren't any bombs there. So I, you know, I kind of grew up around that, even though I was on a farm in in England. But um it seems to me as well if we label them as terror if you classify them as terrorists then as you said some of these quote-unquote legitimate paper trails with some of the money going that's keeping them afloat would also now be under much closer scrutiny and be able to freeze those as well and take take the legs away that way too
1: so let's uh let's take a step back and see how you have done the same to terrorist organizations after 9-11 right um we can talk about the whole just, uh, buildup of intelligence, uh, gathering uh, services and methods and uh, targeting your special operations, uh, forces and their clandestine services towards a threat that put a few planes into big, uh, uh in, into, uh, some buildings in, in New York and killed a lot of innocent people. Uh Completely justified in the minds of Americans. Um, uh, was, there were planes filled with Saudis and some Egyptian guys, but you attacked a country, you attacked Iraq, and you attacked Afghanistan. Um, and now if you're if you're if you're signing a peace treaty with the uh, with the uh, Taliban now, which is interesting. You know, kind of looking back at the whole process. That was that was logical uh, to the country or that seemed like a logical thing to do. Uh, now you skip uh, forward in time and now you're going through an uh, uh, opiate epidemic across the country. Not only that, but there's a lot of criminality attached to cartel activity across the country. You know, we can we can probably trace some of those influences in places like Chicago where people are killing each other. Um, for control for uh for control of markets uh in the in, in their areas and their regions uh, you could see the same phenomenon across the country in different parts inner cities, and, and and things of that nature and um uh, i mean it's it's uh killing off a generation of people um and somehow that isn't uh that somehow, that isn't uh, in the minds of most people. That isn't a justification for the country to target uh, certain groups of people out there that are making millions of dollars uh, <laughs> off uh, selling and moving substances into the U.S. Not only that, but protecting their interests on the Mexican side and killing a shit ton of people in Mexico. Uh, sometimes, somehow, that doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, equate. Going into action for Americans, um, and I and, and I know it's a uh, it's a delicate subject, uh, but uh, per, uh, personally, I don't see any solution that involves going uh, that involves uh, going hand in hand with the American the Mexican government uh, to clean up the problem in in, in Mexico because. That's what the U.S. has been doing for the past uh, few decades, and nothing has changed. Um, interesting things to kind of think about. Most, uh, most of us that pay taxes in the U.S. actually pay for uniforms, firearms, training, ammunition, vehicles, gasoline of police agencies and the military moving in and around cartel, counter-cartel or counter-narcotic operations in Mexico. And a lot of those guns uh, that get sold uh, to the Mexican government uh, end up arming a group of, you know, municipal police officers, state police officers in some parts of the country that actually work for the cartels.
0: Uh, uh, It's (laughs) crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I know you talked about the Fast and Furious disaster as well. And I had uh, Jay Dobbins on who was an undercover ATF agent. He talked about that catastrophic fuck up as well i mean there's when you look at you know some of the things that have happened again in the shadows with a government stamp on it it's, it's horrendous and they've put you know over time and time again they put weapons in in the hands of people that end up killing americans and and you know in this case mexican civilians as well
1: yeah yeah i mean it's uh the the fast and the furious thing i got to experience that as a mexican all right so i um, we found the guns and we didn't realize where they came from. And then, you know, then I saw CNN, you know, that's another thing, you know, there, there's this, uh, there's a tendency to, uh, people of thinking that, you know, they're neighbors neighboring countries and talk to each other. That's, that's not really the case. There's no trust at all between those, both governments and countries and the people that are working for those governments and countries and rightfully so. Um, you know, the, you know, Americans are, oh, Mexicans are corrupt. Uh, all the cops in Mexico are corrupt and, you know, and trust them, of course. You know, that's kind of the mindset. Uh, but then you can, then you look back at some CIA operations in Mexico dealing with the with the mo- movement of narcotics and gro- growing of narcotics in Mexico. And then you scratch your head as far as uh, who's detrimental to, to whose health, right? Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's uh, a, one day, some of our kids are going to look back at this whole thing uh, in history books and kind of I think I think we they, they're going to be far enough, a, enough, far, enough of a there's going to be enough of a distance or, or in time that they can see the full scope of the whole thing. Um, I think they're going to I think they're going to scratch their heads as far as how big and horrible uh, th- this whole thing was. Hopefully it'll end. I'm, 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 I'm praying for that to happen, uh, but I don't think any of us are truly aware of the scope of how much death is going to be tagged to this whole uh, period of, uh, of our history and how much, of the, how much of that blood is on American and Mexican government hands.
0: Yeah. And I agree. And a perfect analogy is this COVID right now. So as a medic, I've watched how many hundreds of people just personally in my career have died from obesity and overdose and all these things that we didn't lock the nation down for. We didn't even change the way we feed our children in our schools. We did nothing to prevent this crisis. And that was fine. But all of a sudden, whatever the reason is behind it, COVID, as you said, like nine eleven is the one thing they're like, oh, now we're going to protect lives. Well, you should have always been protecting lives. You should have identified that drug prohibition was horrendous, that that it was a addiction is a mental health crisis, not, not a substance crisis. You should have identified decades ago the ripple effect you were having on other nations because of you know, the, the drug problem, you know, so I agree with you a hundred percent. Like we all need to own it as, as a nation because the, the people wearing the suits in the government buildings, no matter what country you're from, most of them are corrupt. I mean, most of our political systems, you have to be to make it into the top position. Um, and you know, we just sit back and argue about blue or red or, you know, whatever and nothing gets done. And meanwhile, like I've lost multiple firefighters to heroin heroin overdoses specifically that were probably from the places that you used to walk through, you know? So it's hit me absolutely personally, the patients I've run on, the firefighters I've lost that I used to work with. And if we don't get pissed off and and hopefully have the empathy to actually care about a neighboring country as well, as we're seeing the horrendous things that are happening, especially near the border, then... You know what are we going to do? just 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 watch the death toll rise and rise and rise? At a little you know counter and, on CNN and Fox at the moment with COVID, that's happening you know a thousand times over with all the other you know health issues that we're seeing, including addiction and you know the violence around it.
1: Um, you know i i traveled uh, I travel a lot across the country, and yet uh, one of my one of the main things that i've tried to push forth as far as like the manifesto page and and some of the stuff that i put out there is connectivity um giving a face and a voice to some of the things that people only hear about or some of the things that certain companies glorify on you know series on on uh some streaming services uh the uh The connectivity factor is is pretty interesting, and and I I think it's something that we don't have. You know, it's easy to call Mexico a shithole country, and I'll never visit because it's dangerous, and just leave it at that and just uh, wash your hands off uh, of it. Um, And also, it's interesting on the political side of the spectrum, seeing people like uh, George Lopez uh, talk about Mexico and saying that he's a Mexican, when most people in Mexico view him as an American, as, as American as shit as a pocho or not, i mean he doesn't real he doesn't know the realities of Mexico when you hear him talk about the romantic uh, mexico that he grew up in where you know, or, or he visited or some of his family members probably knew that's not the mexico of now you know um there's a weird kind of distortion uh political distortion on both sides of the spectrum um you know uh, one of them is a conservative distortion and they say you know hey ed what do you think should we annex mexico you know as a a kind of a weird joke question but also kind of a real one and uh, i'll tell them you know you need to annex california first probably and maybe annex la annex uh, seattle first and then you probably you should probably worry about annexing mexico um but then on the other side of the spectrum, you hear, uh, uh, no, Mexico, the, the, the cartel guys are just uh, doing, uh, they're just fighting against the corrupt, uh, the corrupt politics in Mexico. They're they're basically Robin Hoods in Mexico. You hear this more on the left uh, side of the political spectrum. And uh, I'll take you down there if you want to meet Robin Hood. You know, uh, Sean Penn, Sean Penn and and Cato Castillo meeting meeting o Chapo Guzman uh El Chapo Guzman would uh would have all the guys that would build his tunnels killed, so the word wouldn't get out uh about the tunnels and and uh th- these guys were you know very humble working people <laughs> making tunnels for a cartel, and then you would see them all get off and that's you know that's not a secret and uh but yet somehow there's no outcry. Uh, against uh, Sean Penn for him going down there and shaking the hands with this guy that's responsible for a shit, shit ton of violence and death.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, because they got the PG thirteen version of the story, not the R rated reality.
1: Well, again, I, t- I tell you that I, I, I keep telling people there's a, these guys are master propaganda artists as well. It's something that people don't talk about, but they're they're pretty good at propaganda. Um, uh, so you know, the Paw Patrol. Uh, cartoon with the police dog is now no longer uh available online yeah, i mean you can't uh stream it maybe it's somewhere on youtube but they're not going to produce it anymore because it has a police dog in it but somehow you know somehow nobody talks about you know some of these cartel glorifying shows uh, online uh or some of these people that uh you know went down there and shook hands with this individual that has now uh gone into legend you know
0: yeah no, examine exactly. I mean, You're absolutely right. Now you mentioned the manifesto. So walk me through your leaving law enforcement and then to Ed's manifesto, the page, and, and the work that you're doing now.
1: Uh, during the last uh, years of uh, me working, being active, I had a. Uh, I actually worked on a uh, a, de- a security detail for a governor in Mexico. Uh, pretty high risk individual. Uh, a very good uh, one of the one of the few. Uh, politicians in Mexico that I met that I that I really really admired. <laughs> There's not a lot of them out there. Uh, I worked with him and uh, and worked with the uh, work with his family um, as a uh, as head of security. And uh, part of the work that I did there was basically familiarizing some of the family members with uh with with the uh, personal safety type stuff. So I started training them and then that led into me being recommended to other families and then to companies and then to a few agencies in Mexico. And then finally making my way stateside and doing some of my first public classes in the, through a company called Triple A Design in San Francisco. Uh, my first class in the U.S. was sold out uh, and it was mostly from uh, people following along. uh, uh, through my social media presence on Facebook and Tumblr back then. And what I was doing with my social media was basically giving a window into a uh, ground boots on the ground type view of what was happening in Mexico. And some of the lessons that I was learning along the way, as far as how to keep myself safe and, you know, how to protect myself and uh, field craft, uh, um, Elements and and and, and uh, lessons that I learned from nefarious types and some you know, government types as well uh, basically turned into a into a window into my experience uh, down there. Um, things changed politically down in Mexico. Um, the newer government uh, came in and uh, proceeded to change things that had been working for a while. Uh, among those filters that they would put us through every every year. And a lot of the people that were let go because they failed polygraph exams or background checks and things of that nature were hired back on because it, it, they were declared as unconstitutional uh, uh, reasoning to fire people. Um, and all of a sudden I was standing in the office of a director who was asking me if I wanted to work with them uh, and go against uh, go against a specific cartel, which basically w- meant, uh, do you want to work for the rival cartel <laughs> uh, as part of this uh, police unit? Um, I I resigned that same day and and uh, and crossed into the U.S. and never looked back.
0: Amazing. So so from that point, tell me how you ended up you know, creating an entire career now from the advisor side?
1: Uh, When I was working down in Mexico, I I worked with a lot of people, liaison work. Um, Some of these people back then that were active uh, are now inactive and are working on the training side of things. Uh, A lot of them uh, sort of wrote books. A lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of them went went to work for Hollywood productions and stuff like that. And uh I basically refound them, re found them uh during my time active uh on the US side, um and I mean, just connected. That kind of led me into uh being hired on by certain training uh companies as a uh as a consultant, uh being uh invited on to training uh regiments uh, with some Guys like the Secret Service, uh, people in the FBI, those have program uh, people from um, certain, you know, special units as a bad guy. Basically, I'll go there and show them what I would do to attack, to plan, uh, what methods are I, I saw used against us, you know, that type of stuff. So that that kind of opened up a whole. A world for me on on the u.s side
0: brilliant now i know you obviously you know have so many things that you do as far as you know advising the uh, bodyguard protection side as well just so i can pull out a couple of nuggets before you know we transition to some closing questions with regard to people traveling especially people in the you know the california texas those kind of areas that may be going over the border what are some of the myths the misconceptions that americans have and what would be some advice that you would give them when it ke- comes to traveling into mexico
1: uh one of the major myths you see and hear about uh is americans uh, are fearful of the cartels in the in, in in mexico and they think anything that happened to them and you know they might happen to them will, will be related to cartels uh and the truth is, I actually worked on a few cases in, in Mexico, and I know of, of a few others, a lot of them actually, of, uh, of Americans going down to some of the resort towns and being drugged, uh, being sexually assaulted, and a few murders as well. Uh, and it's always uh, Amer- uh, it's always Americans saying, oh, it's probably cartel-related, probably a criminal group somewhere target that targeted them for some reason. And the truth is, it's mostly American on American crime in tourist areas in the in Mexico that that kind of that kind of basically they target they target other Americans in, in, in those uh, in those areas. So, you know, imagine the perfect crime if you're a deviant a sexual deviant that utilizes things like Rohypnol on people. Uh, you go to Mexico where it's easily obtained and you do your horrible sexual predatory whatever down there and you come back and hide in the U.S. Um, what I'd say to people that travel into Mexico or travel internationally in any way, uh, you know, trust no one. <laughs> Be careful with everybody, even if the individual in front of you has the same passport as you do. I've, I have a myriad of horror stories that involve other people from the same countries, meeting each other out there in the greater, greater expanse. Um, and you know. And another thing I'll tell the people, you can travel with a lot of things. Your bill of rights doesn't travel with you. Your constitutional rights don't travel with you. And your concept of what is normal does not travel with you. If you're in California and if you've never paid off a highway patrolman to let, let you off a, a DUI charge, uh, realize that just across the border, that is a very real thing you can do. And doesn't mean you need to do it. doesn't mean you should do it, but realize it's a thing that is expected of some people down there to be paid off uh, and, 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 and for them to let you go. So, you know, one of the biggest uh, and most important counter custody or escape and evasion tools I've ever used is cash. So... If you're planning to move around in certain parts of the world, realize what make, what is of value in that region. Realize that uh, paying somebody off might be an option. And uh, there's, a, there's something to be said about being self sufficient. Uh, so look for training uh, of any kind that you can get to be better prepared. And I think one of the most un American things that I've heard, and I hear it constantly, uh, is I wouldn't go there. It's too dangerous. <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't like being told where to go. So if I can, I just prepare myself the best I can to go some places. Um, if you're afraid and don't want to leave your country, you're missing out on, the, on, on some things. You know, there's danger everywhere. Uh, but uh, if you want to experience some of the most mind-blowing tacos uh, on the planet, you're probably going to have to go to one of the most dangerous cities on the planet. Uh I think it's worth it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you make a good point, though. If you're, especially, let's say, back in the the '80s, you go to LA, you could find yourself in, you know, in the Hollywood Hills, which you're going to be pretty safe, or you can find yourself in Compton, where you may not be as safe. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, it's education and and understanding not just the city, but actually the part of the city that you're going to. And I think the the advice you made of not trusting a fellow foreigner is very, very important. I've had several people on here that have discussed human trafficking and you know it's not the, the white van that suddenly people jump out and you know fling you in and leave it's the complete opposite it's the trust is gained until they realize they've been duped and it's too late then
1: yeah I mean the, the human trafficking thing is I've, I've, I saw glimpses and, 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 and pieces of the structure I I've, I've saw people that organized certain things in Mexico, as far as moving people, it's a very real thing. Um, And the things that you are seeing in the U S as new are things that have been going on as far as trafficking people in Mexico, uh, that have been going on for years down there. So um, it's a very real thing. And people, people think it's some, it's some sort of conspiracy theory or, or one of those, uh, you know I, know, I don't know, they link it to other conspiracy types out there. It's a very real thing. Every now and then I post up some videos of uh, things found and places found and vehicles found in certain places. Uh, it's a very real threat. It's a very real threat, not just a, a, a abroad, but also in, in, in the States.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to transition some closing questions, but just one thing I kind of – it wasn't even really a question, just an observation – Let's say the, the, you know, El Chapo, the, 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 top of the, the cartels, the person who's making all this money hand over fist. What really blows me away is they, they can't sleep peacefully at night. There's always that chance that someone's going to put a bullet in the back of their head or slit their throat. Um, you know, and there's only so many times you can eat during a the day. There's only, <laughs> you know, so many mem, things of jewelry you can wear on you. So that's the really sad thing about all this violence is, when i have members of the military on and i say you know what was war zone x like they said well there was these you know shit bags that we were chasing and everyone else was just like they are in the u.s like they are in the uk there was a husband and a wife and their kids and they were playing and the dad was fixing the car and you know whatever it was so the to me the insanity of all this violence all this death is for what you still eat three times a day you still shit once or twice a day you know and so the lunacy of this terrorism the lunacy of this greed of these you know these cartels or you know whatever it is like what is it getting what is it ultimately achieving i mean there's there's nothing your life is no different than anyone else other than the labels on your clothes are a little bit fancier than some of ours
1: yeah i mean uh it, it uh different uh different cartel members, uh, different societies down there. Uh, so we'll take the example of El Mayo Sambada. El Chapo has been made out to be this mastermind head of the cartel that he was not. You know, El Chapo Guzman was a high-level operator for the Sinaloa cartel, but he was in no shape or form the leader in the Sinaloa cartel. That, uh, that distinction falls to a guy named El Mayo Sambada, um, who basically took in El Chapo Guzman and kind of showed him the ropes way back when? He's been at it as the head of the civil law Cartel since the 80s. Uh, he's a mysterious figure. He's never been caught. Um, he uh, his one of his sons just is is in is in uh, federal custody. Uh, who actually wrote uh, gave over her, his diaries to. Uh, a Mexican author who then published it, and you can see some of the uh, weird interworkings of what it's like to be the son of the head of the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, it's called *The Traitor*. It's a pretty interesting book. I highly recommend people kind of take a look at it. It provides an interesting window into how things actually operate in Mexico. Um, so, uh, so you you can see what what his motivations are in that book in a way. And uh, and what it means uh, for him to be who he is and, and run what he runs. Uh, this is a guy that would spend his uh, – he used to live in California. Uh, the borders don't mean anything to him because he can use tunnels. Uh, he's, he's, he's known to have been in, in – I mean, everywhere, internationally. You know, he travels without any problem. Um, there is – some sort of permissiveness when it comes to how he has operated. There's a reason why he's never been caught, you know? Um, so it may mean that he's being utilized as an asset by some foreign government. Uh, it may mean that he they'd rather him be in control than somebody else. I mean, who knows? You know, the U.S. has been known to do stuff like that. Uh, but the interesting thing about him is his his general... Quietness, as far as he, he's, he's not, he doesn't show walk basically, it's quiet. I had the experience of driving down a really shitty road in Sinaloa once, and then it turned into a really awesome paved road that looked that rivaled anything that I've seen in the US well lit, well paved, well marked. Uh, the person that was driving uh, me around told me, Oh, this is the cartel made part of the road um, there's whole towns that are built by cartel, by some of these cartels down there whole families that are basically invested in these cartels keeping the uh, thing going there's uh, you know there's uh, certain gas stations in the middle of the hills that uh, have a bunch of Ferraris and Denali show up every now and then just fill up and leave there's uh, Louis Vuitton stores in Kuga Ka. You know? um, the, the, the power that comes from being a leader of something like that and the dependency as far as people around you to keep you there. I mean, I think that's, that's, that, that, that's, uh, that's more of what we might be talking about as far as why somebody would do something like that. Uh, there's the, basically a whole state of people depend on him to keep doing what he does. You know, it's yeah. It's an interesting kind of work think about it.
0: Yeah, and it is, but, you know, but at the same time he can never truly relax. You know, he can never enjoy the life that some of us with anonymity do. I mean, I think it's the same even with let's say whoever the head of Philip Morris is now. You know, knowing that your product has killed millions of people on planet Earth and 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 you now live this life of luxury, but again, you can only eat three, eat three meals a day, you can only wear so many clothes at a time. But that's okay because, you know, that's more important to you than, than all the lives that your products has, has taken from you. And I just – I find it so weird because that's not happiness. You know, the, the, the can't, they must be less happy at the very top than a lot of people that have seemingly nothing that live, you know, stress-free lives on planet Earth.
1: Yeah. I mean, I get the – I get the – I get the observation but also realize that normal is fluid. You know, normal is fluid and, and purpose also is fluid as far as uh, the human experience. I've, I've seen some people in some horrible situations that thrive in that situation. And then you extract them from that situation and put them in a setting of calmness and they want to kill themselves. Um, I don't know. I mean... Uh, probably all that all that stress and all that movement, you know, probably keeps them alive.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's normal uh, for them.
1: Yeah, um, you know, seeing some war fighters and stuff like that come back from wherever they wherever they were, uh, you know, there's a there's definitely something happening chemically in, in in the brains of all of us that have been through some horrible stuff that ages us when we come back to uh, to the calm. You know? Yeah, no, I um, do. I, I think uh, I think some I think somebody like him. You now he's he's hooked for life. I mean, I, I get the whole not being able to sleep and not being able to pass along that crown to anybody. And I mean, a few of his kids are in jail. Some of, some some were killed. Uh, but that's I don't know. You know, I, I can understand. I can understand the longevity in in the. In a in a position like that, I just don't I just don't
0: understand the reasoning. Yeah, well, exactly. I think that's exactly it. But um, it's an interesting observation. Well, just one very quick thing before we transition to some closing questions, because you did touch on it. So there you are. Not only were you experiencing firsthand all these horrific things as a police officer in Mexico, but then you know with your work after, you're still you know, seeing these horrific events. You touched on psilocybin. Tell me about your mental health and what worked for you, you know, with, with the trauma that, that you took on from your career?
1: Uh, so, you know, a few things, you know, there's, 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 there was never a, a question of, or a treatment to post-traumatic stress disorder in, in, in my work field ever, you know, whatever happened, whatever situations I went through, there was never uh, a designated, designated psychologist that I had to talk to about it. There was never any treatment plan for anything that happened. All you got was a few days off. Uh, maybe you got drunk during one of those days off with the rest of the guys. Pat on the back and let's go out there and do something. You know, let's just go out there and do it again. Um, the physical, mental toll it took on. Everybody around me is pretty interesting. A lot of my friends are gone because they committed suicide. A lot of them turned to the dark side and went to work for cartel groups. Uh, uh, A few of them, um, you know, were just eaten up by the job itself and were killed by the job. Uh, And just like I was uh, uh, telling you about some of those risky, risky lifestyles. And all of a sudden I found myself at a full stop, you know. Um, I was I was working in a, in a in a in a work environment that was you know a firefight uh, situations every few weeks uh, being uh, in cars with people that are heavily armed and you're heavily armed and you're doing stuff in places and you're involved you see some of the uh, some of the actions you took uh, on the news and you're like hey I was there. You hear a corrido, like a cartel corrido, which is a Mexican folk song, uh, talking about something that happened where you were a part of that, so you're you're in the, you're you're kind of like get a high off that in a way. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a uh, I'm in a guest house somewhere in California, going through my immigration process and everything's still and quiet and safe. All I hear is the wind outside, and the trees kind of flowing back and forth, and And then you you come to the realization that your part in whatever story that was is over. Um, But you still hear the radio in your head. You know, you still lock the door and put a put a door wedge underneath it. Uh, You still look at your rearview mirror. You still, uh, you know, you still check. uh, Check beside your leg if your rifle's still there. I used to, I used to sleep with my rifle next to my leg. Um, you you wake up trying, wanting to ask ask uh, who, how many people died overnight uh, in the uh, quadrant of the city that you're you're you were designated in, and all that shit just goes quiet. And I think uh, uh, when I was when I was in that uh, situation, uh, I, I was blessed to have. Uh, and be around some uh, American uh, veterans uh, from from a few wars and from a few branches and uh, they basically took me to school on what PTSD was and on how some of them had treated it themselves or how some of them were treating it and uh, they gave a name and a face to what I was going through that I I, I just thought, you know, so I, I always equated to this, and I was like, uh, getting uh, getting a gunshot wound and not treating it and just working through it and just just walking around with this open wound bleeding out, thinking that well I just have to get used to it, you know, that was kind of the mindset I was going through when I was kind of trying to adapt to uh, quote unquote, unquote normal life. Uh, so these guys uh, these guys gave it a face, gave it a name.
0: Yeah, and that analogy is perfect and I think so many of us in you know many of the the professions that are listening that that still exists that kind of you know suck it up rub some dirt in it mentality and and it is like it is a great way of envisioning if, if you were bleeding actively you would do something about it well there's no different mentally especially when the ultimate goal is not to recover as it were but to be even better to be stronger because you're more resilient now but if you don't address it then you're constantly wounded basically
1: yeah it's it's uh it's like being consistently uh, it's like a ho- holding a uh it's like holding a heavy rock in front of you every day, and just taking it as a normal thing for your muscles to be completely tense and for that weight to be there uh, it was in my in my background my culture where I came from that was normal, and having you know fellow colleagues shoot themselves uh, during fire watch or having some of my guys uh take a vacation time to have some quiet times so they could kill themselves and stuff like that was kind of normal as well. And that, that the normalcy of it, I, 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 again, my, I always tell people, my concept of normal is warped as fuck when it comes to, when it comes to trying to relate to people, uh, American um, My my American friends, I do. We try to, you know, I try to relate or compare things as far as my upbringing and how I kind of went through life. And uh, I see commonalities in some of the uh, in some of the ways that some people have come back from experience. Uh, I always tell them, you know, the difference between me and them is that I didn't come back home for more. I was at home. So the war happened in between the houses and in between the spaces and with the people that I grew up with. Uh, My enemy spoke the same language as I did. He he prayed to the same God that I did. Uh, Some of the funeral services were usually sometimes they were across the street from each other. So my enemy was a very close enemy, Um, which I don't know if that added a dimension into the effects it had on me uh, in the long term, but I think it, uh, probably did. And, uh, I didn't come home to flag waving, no parades. Uh, my work simply ended. And, uh, I've, I, 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 to this day, I, I get, uh, comments, DMs, uh, people talking horribly about me and because of what I did and where I, where I worked. Uh, and, uh, it's just my normal. Now, it uh, I, I just accepted it for I accepted that as a thing for a while, and then you know, um, I'm, I'm, God bless the United States Marine Corps. That's all I'm going to say. Most of my most of the people that guided me out of that hole that I was in were uh, Marines, and there's something about the wiring they put into those animals uh, uh, that uh, made them very uh, you know headstrong with me. And uh, they, they, uh, they brought me out of it. And mostly through talking about some of the experiences, uh, coming to grips with some of them. Uh, every now and then I post uh, some of the uh, diary entries that I have from the, the, that, uh, ther- those therapy sessions that I had with some of these people. Uh, they call them the fever dreams. <laughs> a lot of people like them. A few people kind of uh, ask me about them. Like, wh- what are they from? Are they a book or something? All those are pages from my, uh, my personal kind of diary as far as uh, me working through shit <laughs> that I went through. Um, eventually, I found myself in this surreal place in Denver uh, where they, I was standing in front of a lady giving me a, a marijuana-laced cookie in a dispensary. And, you know, you ever have seen that meme of that uh, that uh, Vietnam vet, you know, with the fire and brimstone going through his eyes? I had one of those flashback moments of me just burning a bunch of uh, pot fields and and getting in shootouts with kids that were moving around marijuana in Mexico. And all of a sudden I'm standing in front of this nice lady eating a pot cookie in Denver. So I realized... I realized the futility of all that, uh, effort, waste of blood and life, um, trying to fight against this plant, which was both, uh, horribly depressing, but also a cathartic moment of just pure kind of joy and relief. And, uh, and I just ate a cookie that made me feel funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that kind of, uh, it it it, uh, it opened up uh, it opened up a few a few avenues of uh, of uh, of just uh, coming to grips with things um, and uh, things like uh, TBI you know I had a, a lot of major blows to my head um, and uh, trying to cope with uh, major spouts of depression. Um, and uh, adjusting to new realities of the ways, uh, the ways that I was now living, and uh, on top of all that, being uh, being new to this whole American experience and trying to adapt to a new country, uh, all that kind of really, really got it got, got into my uh, got into my head. And um, I had some amazing people around me that uh, kept my head afloat for all of it
0: amazing i can only imagine when you say about the the neighborhood there's a, there's a similarity with some of the police fire medics are out there and then the military men and women comment on this sometimes They're like we do get to leave our war zones overseas They they were wearing different clothes speaking different languages but you know a lot of the men and women in uniform in the first responder professions you know, we do drive by a, a street corner like, oh, that's where you know those three kids died. Oh, that's where that guy beat his wife to death. You know, it's, it's pretty horrific, but not in the magnitude that you saw in Tijuana, obviously. So I can kind of relate to, to that concept as well. I can relate to some of the cultural differences coming from a different country. And, you know, sometimes that almost being infuriating, knowing that you've seen things done better somewhere else and we have the resources to absolutely bring that into this country, too but um with the, the psilocybin was that a, was that alongside counseling or was it purely more of a, a of an experience that helped you heal uh,
1: i went on uh I, I went on this uh this process of trying to like I, I seeked out therapy uh i took some medication um uh medication switched uh, my uh, it, it made me feel like shit basically uh it made me feel like a different type of shit, you know, <laughs> um, uh, some of, some of the medication that was, uh, that was, uh, prescribed to me, uh, w- would make me <clears throat> feel groggy and made me feel like a zombie. Um, and it, uh, I felt that, I felt like it was basically, uh, helping me avoid the problem instead of kind of confronting it. Um, I seeked out uh, I seeked out uh, a very aged guy out there, which I can't talk that much about, but he's a he's a, he's a pretty knowledgeable guy. Um, uh, he does these uh, this, this thing therapeutically and with science behind it. Um, and uh, he a few of my uh, friends that are former SF guys and um have uh, gone through the process as a therapy uh, tool. Uh, kind of pointed me towards the, that direction and i've uh you know I've, I've, I've i had i had tried that before uh during my youth when i was uh traveling around uh down in mexico they call them veladas, which it means uh you know basically being uh, twelve at night you would go through these uh psilocybin mushroom trips uh down in places like oaxaca and Chiapas. Uh, it was mostly a hippie thing, you know, like an experimental thing. Um, uh, but now I was going into the realm of microdosing and macro dosing as well, and coming to grips with a few things and um, I don't know, personally, my experience with it was uh, that of reflection. A major part of it was reflection, uh, that of uh, realizing a few things uh, about myself by, in a way, going out of myself uh, in, in, in the mental scape uh, and coming to terms with things. Um, it, uh, it, has, it has given me a clarity that I did not have. It has, uh, you know, the way I describe it is, uh, uh, I've been taking pictures with a camera phone that was covered in milk for a long time. And I wiped away some of that milk off the lens and now all the pictures are coming out clear. Um I, I and I don't know. just uh to me it's been amazing. It's been incredibly helpful. Uh and uh I I, I try and sing its praises whenever I can.
0: Yeah. Well I mean I've and I've had several people several of them seem to be Navy SEALs for some reason, but have said the same thing. And I think that's another side of this conversation is the very laws that have caused so much pain and death Are also stopping really, really incredibly powerful treatments for the very men and women that are out there protecting the US, protecting, you know, Mexico, protecting the UK. Um, so, you know, allowing those to actually be used as the therapeutic in that is another added bonus for, you know, in my opinion, one of the solutions for what we've been discussing for the, the last couple of hours. But for everyone listening, how can they find your website? And then how can they find you on Instagram?
1: Uh, Ed's Manifesto at uh, Ed's Manifesto at, uh, on Instagram at Ed's Manifesto on Instagram. I'm on Facebook as well. Facebook is a dying uh, platform. But, yes, it is. But I'm still on, <laughs> but, but I'm still on there. Uh, and you can also find me through my website www.ed'smanifesto.com it's, uh, I'm, I'm slowly building it up. Uh, working on a possible podcast of my own. Which is going to be more of a uh, weird aud- 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 auditable recount of some of the uh, fever dreams as far as the diary goes and uh, it's all going to be on that website so if people want to check out my calendar as far as course offerings some previous blog posts uh, some podcasts that I've been on it's all kind of in the same place at
0: Brilliant and then you just joined uh, one of my previous guests Byron Rogers on the Protector Symposium so just for people listening out there it, you know, for, if they want to really explore you know traveling safety basically personal protection um what's your kind of contribute contribution to that
1: um uh, I've, I've for whatever reasons uh i've been uh relegated to the dark side of the uh of the force when it comes to uh tr- safety and training and stuff like that so uh, i am known for the more unconventional side of preparation and and and, and, and uh and training <laughs> So uh, I go into not having anything uh, where you travel to and being able to gather what you need uh, I go into how to carry things that you are not necessarily allowed to carry uh but you should be able to carry anyways uh from uh from selecting a self-defense specific, uh self defense specific knife somewhere in the uh overseas to uh, to carrying specific tools to be able to negate the use of restraints out there, to uh, knowing how to counteract uh, certain chemical restraints that might be used against you in a foreign environment, Uh, what are some of the antidotes and countermeasures you can apply, Uh, to just awareness training, just uh, working on on your social engineering and awareness
0: brilliant thank you so much for uh being so generous i truly appreciate Uh, i know we've gone over what we said we were gonna gonna do but this has been such a great conversation i truly appreciate you taking the time
1: oh uh, thank you guys and uh and i mean thanks for having me on it was it was a great conversation